This is an ABC podcast. Aloha kako, talofani. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Mahalo nui. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Aggie Dubol, your host here with you for the next hour. Today on the show, despite the change in Vanuatu's government, political clashes are still happening. So we'll head live to one of our reporters in Vanuatu to give us the latest. Balao's president addresses a fellow delegates at the UN Assembly with a plea for climate finance. We call on the international community to work with the SIDS to increase access to climate finance. We look at the release of a new book that charters the switch-up of Solomon Islands' security pact with China. This book that we're releasing talks about an opportunity for Australia to take stock about our approach in the Pacific and, and what to do more broadly. More on any of these stories, they'll be available online simply by typing in ABC Pacific Beat on your search engine. We'd love for you to share these stories all across your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Thubal and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, there are calls for humanitarian intervention amid reports of escalating violence in West Papua. Last week, five teenagers were killed in an alleged clash with Indonesian military. Two days later, there was an alleged raid on a church. Marion Farr with this report. In the mountainous region of Yahokimo, there are reports of bloodshed. The killings of five civilian teenagers are the reason or one of the latest incidents happened in West Papua. Last week, five West Papuan teenagers were killed during an alleged conflict with the Indonesian military. Narina Savatiri is the campaign and advocacy manager for Amnesty International in Indonesia. The human rights NGO has been looking into the reports. The alleged perpetrator is Indonesian military officer. The case is still, you know, investigated by us and our partners. We're still trying to verify. A Papuan police spokesperson told local media the deaths happened during a clash between the Indonesian military and members of the West Papua National Liberation Army. But the separatist group has denied the claim. They have announced that five of the teenagers are not part of their group, meaning that they're pure civilians. Pictures on social media show the young victims being buried. Amnesty International has also confirmed reports of an Indonesian military raid on a West Papuan church in the Nuga district a couple of days later. It's been alleged that members of the church were arrested without a warrant and tortured. The fact that they're attacking a church Definitely, it shows distress. Violence in West Papua has increased over the past year, both from the Indonesian military and separatist fighters. In March last year, United Nations human rights experts expressed serious concern about the situation. They cited abuse against Indigenous Papuans, including child killings, disappearances, torture and mass displacement. The Indonesian government has deployed additional armed troops to the region, claiming their presence is needed to restore peace. But Narina Savatiri says it's not the way to go. What's happening is that the more troops deployed in the region, the more distrust is there. I mean, the West Papuan, from our understanding, they've been uh, traumatic with the presence of the Indonesian military, the security force. 
It's a concern for Octavianus Motte. He is the new Vice President of the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, an overarching body seeking independence from Indonesia. Mr Motte says tens of thousands of people have been displaced. This area has become a military operation zone since December 2018. There are more than 60,000 Papuans are hiding in the, in the mountains. And he says it's not just West Papua's future that's at stake. He's concerned Indonesia will allow vast areas of rainforest to be destroyed for development, putting more pressure on the planet. It is time to save West Papua for the sake of safer war. Mr Motta is urging Pacific leaders to raise the issue at the United Nations General Assembly this week. I'm really begging the Pacific Island leaders to put human rights crisis in West Papua and calling for Indonesia to open the area and calling for UN intervention, humanitarian assistance to be allowed to visit West Papua, to allow journalists to be in West Papua. And that was Octavanas Motte, Vice President of the ULMWP, ending that report by Marion Farr. And the ABC has contacted the Indonesian government for comment, but has not yet received a response. When Solomon Islands imposed a ban on single-use plastics at the start of the month, many questioned what alternatives were in place. In Australia, where a ban on single-use plastics has been in place, there's plenty of options on hand for shoppers to choose from. Lena Al-Sadi with this report. The Cornerstone Cafe on the edge of Sydney CBD is crowded, people quickly getting their hit of caffeine before getting on with their busy days. When my order eventually came, it's handed to me in a brown, edible cup. In a cafe dedicated to cutting waste, its walls are covered with fact posters and reusable cups for sale. If you read the posters, there's information about recycling and how many cups of coffee get tossed each year in Australia. In case you're wondering, that number is about 1 billion drink cups a year. And most end up in landfill. We see end-of-life products being so overwhelming in that they are going to, of course, cause a problem for our planet. Professor Vina Sahajwala specializes in recycling waste into new materials. Single-use plastics can be harmful to the environment. And that's why Australia's national packaging targets set out a goal to phase out the problematic ones by 2025. You may have noticed your local businesses make some swaps since bans on some single-use plastics were put in place to achieve that goal. And you yourself may have had to make some changes to your habits. But do you know what's replacing those plastics in your local cafe? Primarily paper, bamboo and sugarcane are replacing a lot of plastics out there. Louis Antonio is the director of Premier North Pack, a supplier of these types of products. Materials such as paper, bamboo and sugarcane are considered the most sustainable materials. Uh, They've been with us for some time now. The major advancements have been the development of the new linings uh, to enable them to be recycled or home composted. These products encourage easy and uh, responsible collection and disposal through our existing waste collection services, you know, our three bins. And pre-COVID, we had a range of uh, edible plates and bowls made of oat bran. Unfortunately, they weren't very tasty. Aside from edible cups and bamboo forks, what other interesting materials might we see in the future? Let's look at what's new in the world of recycling, where the answers could be. 
looking at materials like waste coffee as a great way to eliminate the use of coal-based materials from the making of steel. It's about saying, well, okay, well, we've got elements like carbon and hydrogen. So all of these, if you start to look deeper at the elemental level, we don't just see them as the macro products of, oh, it's a piece of waste wood or it's a piece of coffee or tire, but rather we get right down at the elemental level and look at the molecules and then we look at that transformation. By taking it down to the basic elements, Professor Vina and her team can recycle the waste from making your coffee to make steel, which could become the reusable cups that hold your coffee. And using this research, waste plastics and fabrics can become things like ceramic and new plastics too. The material that might have been in our cutlery or might have been in our clothes or in our cars doesn't have to come back to life in the exact same product format. In fact, recycling technology recently made recycled coffee cups and glass bottles into some road segments in Penrith. These end-of-life products are not just seen as, as a problem, but seen as an opportunity. The raw materials that we need to go after are going to be available in our pile of waste, whether they come from our homes or whether they come from our cars. But it's definitely a change from how we've done things before. So how are businesses feeling about sustainability and recycling? These are being developed in partnership with industry. And I think to me that's an important way in which we proceed forward, we collaborate and we work together. We find retailers, all of industry, really supportive of sustainability initiatives and improvements. A lot of industry have been moving voluntarily towards more sustainable packaging and things like that. Uh, what we usually find is they just really got queries about exact details. Ebony Johnson is a project manager of policy from the National Retail Association. Now it's time for small businesses to get involved. She also says consumers need to do their part in the transition to a greener Australia and world. A lot of consumers want to do more sustainable things, want to choose more sustainable choices. So consumers remembering their bag every time they leave the house, remembering their reusable coffee cup and things like that. So next time you go to throw out something, take a second to think about whether it can be recycled because it might just become something you use in the future. That report by Lena Alsadi. Pacific Beat. Well, Vanuatu may have a new Prime Minister, but the fallout from last month's change in government is continuing. Yesterday, the opposition boycotted Parliament in a bid to block a motion, which was aimed at suspending the country's former Prime Minister, Ishmael Karlsakal's former Speaker of Parliament. Leah Lombu is the ABC's reporter in Vanuatu and a journalist with the Vanuatu Broadcasting and Television Corporation. She joins us now live from Port Vila with I say Good morning, Leah. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Well, let's start at the beginning. I mean, why was there a move by government MPs to suspend the former Speaker of Parliament and former Prime Minister? Mm. And this was a decision taken by the current uh, government. Um, the government is claiming that former Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakau has made decisions uh, during his time as the Prime Minister to appoint an MP into different positions and uh, claiming that uh, that MP was getting double salaries, and that's uh, the same thing with another MP. So that's the claim against uh, Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakau and uh, against the Speaker uh, due to his decision uh, to prolong the motion of no confidence against the last government in August. 
So those were the accusations against um, uh, former Prime Minister Ishmael Kalfakal and also the current Speaker to, to suspend them. Wow. What is the former Speaker and former Prime Minister saying about these allegations, though? Well, at this time, uh, we're just getting a response from the leader of opposition, Charles Salwai, who's speaking on their behalf, and he's saying that it's an unfair action and that the government should just move forward after removing the former Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakao and his position is enough. And it's also unfair action against the Speaker who supported uh, the motion uh, against the PM, uh, PM Kalsakao in August. Hmm. Uh, is this just political retribution or, Leah, is there more to the case? Hmm. I think, uh, yeah, definitely uh, this looks like uh, it could be political retribution, um, uh, some uh, revenge for maybe some of the actions that the last government has done uh, against uh, the current MPs who are now in uh, the uh, government, government side. So, um, yeah, that's that's what we're seeing. Uh, is this the first time, though, for Parliament to try and suspend MPs? No, it's not. But it's also not um, something that's common in Vanuatu politics. But it's uh, uh, something that just happened um, uh, recently uh, during the uh, government in 2020, and. Uh, the government to this date, and we've seen more a suspension of members of parliament. Uh, and one of the members of parliament who was suspended uh, in the uh, Bob Lovman government was uh, uh, Gracia Shedrak, and he's currently in the government side at this time. So, um, yeah, the suspension of MPs uh, are something that we're seeing uh, happening more in, in, in parliament. Uh, Leah, can you let us know what happened yesterday, though, when uh, Parliament convened? So during the Parliament yesterday, the opposition boycotted uh, the Parliament, so there was no sitting, uh, no quorum to continue with the the motion that the government has put forward. Uh, The opposition are just saying that they're not happy about what the government is uh, deciding to do. So that's why they've uh, boycotted Parliament yesterday. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Aggie Dubo on the line. Uh, with me from Vanuatu is Leah Lohenbord, the ABC's reporter in Vanuatu. So from what you were saying, Parliament could not sit. So what will happen when Parliament convenes again on Monday? So according to the standing order of Parliament, um, it will only require a simple majority of the members of the Parliament to constitute a quorum uh, next week on Monday. So the government could go ahead to um, remove the current Speaker of Parliament and then go ahead with a motion to suspend Ishmael Kalsakao and uh, the speaker, speaker, current Speaker of Parliament. Has there any, been any word, I suppose, from the members of public? Uh, what have they said uh, about this latest round of political clashes? Definitely, there's like a lot of frustration in the community. There's, uh, we've seen like on social media, a lot of people are now criticizing the opposition for uh, boycotting the parliament yesterday because uh, many uh, people, the public especially, they want to see all this situation in parliament to end so the government can uh, settle and focus on development, uh, developments inside the country. So uh, with this 
uh, ongoing uh, situation and what uh, the boycott that happened yesterday, there's more more frustration uh, from the public, especially towards the opposition and also the government uh, for all this this happening. And they're calling on on the leaders to um, uh, allow these things to settle and to um, focus on developments in in the country. I was about to say that, uh, Leah, look, has this political dilemma taken over, you know, areas needing improvement in Vanuatu? We, you know, we can think about health, education, infrastructure. Has that been the complaints from the community? Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, the last government has made, like, a lot of uh, uh, planning, uh, especially to, uh, to look at these areas you've mentioned. Uh, moving forward with it, but it ha- had only eight uh, months uh, into the government, and then there's the motion that took place. So uh, people were particularly uh, focused on those de- development aspirations, but uh, unfortunately the motion came in and the government changed, and uh, everyone just wants uh, everything to, 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 to go back to, to normal again so that we could focus on, on these developments. Mm. What what then happens next? Like where to from here? Mm. So um, I think what we're all wanting to see is that for the situation to settle. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, with the ongoing um, issues between the government and the opposition, uh, the claims, the allegations against e- each other, um, it, it seems that the situation wouldn't settle down anytime soon. Uh, but uh, yeah, everybody's hoping for for uh, the situation to settle down. Leah, we just want to say thank you very much for your time this morning. We will definitely keep in touch with you uh, for the latest. Thank you. Uh, That is Leah Loanbu, the ABC's reporter and a member of the Vanuatu Broadcasting and Television Corporation. Well, stay tuned because we've got your news wrap up next with producer Carl Evans. You've been tuning in to Pacific Beat. Want to immerse yourself in sport and stories of athletes from across the Pacific? Well, join me, Bobby McCumber, alongside some of the most talented journalists and sports commentators from across the region for a new sports show on ABC Radio Australia, Fresh Off the Field. Each week, we'll bring you interviews with Pacific athletes leaving their mark on the international stage and those aspiring to do the same. From cricket to netball, athletics to rugby and everything in between. Fresh Off the Field, Thursdays, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Uh, yes, it is that time where we head around the region to get the latest uh, with our news wrap. We've got producer Kyle Evans in the studio this morning. Good morning. Good morning to you, Aggie. This week is just uh, flying by, <laughs> isn't it? It is. I can't wait for the weekend. Uh, well, on the first, uh, sorry, on the first, our first uh, story here, an Australian pilot convicted of transporting uh, a huge amount of cocaine into PNG. Uh, he's now appealing his sentence. What's happening there? Yeah, that's right. So uh, John David Cutmore, who was convicted last year, is hoping to appeal his uh, his 18-year prison sentence next month. So this is according to the Post Courier, and he's actually trying to obtain a court transcript from the National Court Registry um, to assist with that effort. So this all comes after he pled guilty to, to transporting more than half a tonne of, uh, of cocaine um, before crash-landing his plane in PNG Central Province uh, three years ago. Um, um, the estimate amount of drugs he was carrying on board was 349 million kina. Um, 
So as a result, he was sentenced to 18 years. However, he's now claiming that 18-year sentence was excessive um, given he has a serious uh, a serious medical condition. Um, it's worth pointing out he's 58 years old, so he's uh, probably not a spring chicken anymore. But, yes. uh, but yeah. Wow. Uh, is the court likely to grant him a hearing, though? Well, it's quite interesting. So according to the article, uh, Cutmore was actually granted leave last month after the justice said uh, an appeal was necessary um, given this particular case was the first of its kind. Um, the justice actually agreed that the sentence um, had been uh, somewhat excessive. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, how that plays out because I'm sure there's plenty of places across the world where 18 years would probably seem standard for, for, for the crime. Yeah, interesting how people do the crime but don't want to pay the time, eh? Mm. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, an attempt to sneak 14 Chinese nationals into Guam uh, has been forwarded by an undercover agent. What's this about? Yeah, so another um, another pretty interesting one. So uh, the United the, the United States Homeland Security Agency uh, recently arrested fourteen Chinese nationals uh, who were caught trying to enter Guam by boat. Um, however, they were caught after paying an undercover agent to transport them. So the agent had been posing as a boat captain and uh, had met the group via Facebook and, and, and had agreed to transport them from Saipan to Guam in exchange for payment. So the operation kicked off uh, in the middle of the night early last week. Um, authorities had photographed them entering the boat, uh, which had actually been leased by uh, Homeland Security. Uh, the captain the captain then got them to present proof of payment, uh, even got them to verbally affirm that they did not want to be contacted. I believe there was even a, ro- a roll call involved to, uh, to, to, you know, to shore up names and, and whatnot. So, you know, literally checking, uh, ticking all the boxes um, in, in real time. And, uh, and then after all that was done, um, uh, a, a, a number of agents emer- emerged and then uh, apprehended, the, apprehended the 14 individuals. I feel like I've seen this movie before, but when will they actually face court? It sounds like a bit of a movie, doesn't it? So uh, according to the article, they were actually uh, appear to, um, set to appear in court this week. However, however, I am yet to find an update uh, on that, but we'll be sure to bring that uh, to the listeners uh, when we do. He sounds like a good agent if he was able to do that. <laughs> That's all I can There's say. A lot of pressure involved in, in something like that, I can, I can tell you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, authorities in Vanuatu, now they're pushing to stamp out the use of bad language on social media. Wow, interesting. Yeah, it's very much an, an authorities-based news up today, isn't it? Um, so Vanuatu's Commissioner of Police has joined uh, Prime Minister Sato Kilman um, and Transparency International Vanuatu to speak out against Facebook users who use strong language or swear words to criticise people they are not happy with. So the Commissioner said the law that allows freedom of expression has a limit, uh, which many people are crossing, uh, and he reminded people that the risk of being arrested and prosecuted uh, is real if they go too far. Um, and it doesn't matter even if you say it on, on social media and not in person. He said if police re- receive a complaint of abuse, they do have a duty to comply uh, regardless of where it came from. So, yeah. It's quite heavy handed, isn't it? Didn't mince his words on that one. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Kyle, for uh, bringing us our news wrap this morning. You have been tuning into Pacific Beat. Join me, Hilda Wayne, for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. You don't call yourself a comedian. Why why is that? Yeah, I just wanted to show everyone that I'm just being myself. If I make you laugh, that's just me. I'm I'm just making you laugh from being me. Tune in to Sisters Let's Talk Thursday mornings at 9 a.m. PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. 
Welcome back to Pacific Beat. This is your host, Aggie the Bowl. Now we head to the UN General Assembly, uh, where President Saranga Whips Jr. from Balao was the first Pacific leader to address the delegates. President Whips said economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic is just one challenge that his country and many in the Pacific are facing. And an event Inevitably, apologies, he called on the developed nations to take more action on dealing with climate change. As major emitters, the G20 nations have a crucial role to play in emission reduction and leading the path towards sustainable development. We urge the UN to simplify access to multilateral funds for SIDS and other vulnerable communities, promoting faster transition. We call on the international community to work with the SIDS to increase access to climate finance. And we believe it's time that we change the metrics we use to determine how we access these funds by using a better index, a multi-vulnerability index, to determine how we help. However, we must ensure that commitments pledged here are acted upon and not forgotten. That was Saranga Whips Jr., the President of Balao, addressing the United Nations General Assembly in New York. You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Now, looking at weather, as a likely El Nino event edges closer, authorities are also monitoring our oceans, where higher temperatures could lead to coral bleaching and affect fisheries. As Isabel Musali reports, a team of international scientists have found marine heat waves are typically more intense and last longer in deeper water. Boarding a CSIRO research vessel is always exciting for marine ecologist Dr Candice Untied. Her team explores deep parts of the ocean, such as in the Gascoigne Marine Park of Western Australia. So the deep sea is such a large and unexplored environment in marine terms. And um, so we are always making new species discoveries, particularly for invertebrates. So those are animals that don't have a backbone. And these are particularly diverse and strange and old animals that occur in the deep sea, most of which we've never seen before. I actually study um, gold corals a large group of deep-sea corals, and um, almost every time we go out on a survey, we pick up new species. But other scientists are making some concerning findings. They've analysed global marine heatwave events over 20 years, focusing on water up to 2,000 metres deep. Thomas Wernberg is a professor of marine ecology from the University of Western Australia and a study co-author. The key findings essentially were that marine heatwaves do happen at depth as well as at the surface. And uh, they actually, on average, seem to be more intense uh, in the interval of 50 to 250 metres. But all the way down to about two kilometres depth, we do see signals of marine heatwaves. So these extreme events at discrete periods of, of extremely high temperatures. He says at the surface, temperatures can change by a few degrees in a marine heat wave, and deep water is generally considered to be very stable. Generally, it gets cooler as you get deeper into the water. So um, some of these places, the average normal temperatures would be in, in the order of um, 10 to 20 degrees, and then uh, only a couple of degrees higher during the marine heat wave. So, you know, one to two degrees extra temperature doesn't sound like very much, but when you are... Um, in 
relatively deep waters where the temperature variation normally is quite low, then elevated temperature of almost two degrees is actually quite a lot. The Indian Ocean and North Atlantic are at higher risk. As for how these heat waves can impact marine life in deeper water, that's still unknown. But Professor Wernberg adds we do know the impacts in shallow waters can be quite severe. And there's not really any reason to suspect that impact would be any less uh, just because the marine heat wave is deeper um, and we can't really see it. So we definitely expect that these marine heat waves can have quite severe effects on, on the distribution of marine life. There are all sorts of species living in the, at the depths of like 50 to 250 metres where these marine heat waves are most intense. So there's a lot of deep water corals, there's a lot of uh, some deep water seaweeds, uh, there's a lot of sponges and uh, acidians and, and all sorts of remarkable sea creatures that you don't see so much in shallower waters. The study has been published in the journal Nature. And that is Isabel Musali with that report. The security pact between China and the Solomon Islands in 2022 caught many off guard and has led to increased focus on the Pacific region from both Australia and the United States. But Honiara's switch to China began back in 2019, and Macau Institute CEO Ed Kavanagh has charted the change in a new book. Um, there were there were some that knew for a long time that there had been this uh, shift towards China being talked about in Solomon's politics. There were many within Solomon Islands who were sceptical of their relationship with Taiwan. So it wasn't entirely a surprise when it did happen. Um, I think, though, it's obviously triggered this conversation about uh, what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong in the Pacific. And uh, I think that is broadly a healthy thing. And, and I think this, this general switch and the aftermath that, um, that uh, this book uh, that, we're releasing, uh, that I'm releasing today um, talks about... Uh, you know, it does provide an opportunity for Australia to take stock about our approach in the Pacific and and what to do more broadly. Uh, so take us back to ni- 2019. What happened? What changed? So uh, in September 2019, the uh, Solomon Islands government led by Manassas Ogavare uh, made the decision to end a 36-year alliance with Taiwan and instead open this relationship uh, with China. And it obviously caused a great deal of international uh, concern and attention. You even had uh, you know, US Vice President Mike Pence and, and other US senators, et cetera, coming out and criticising uh, Solomon Islands for that decision. Um, and, you know, I, I'll go back to, you know, to that time I was um, effectively moonlighting as a, as a freelance journalist and got uh, this incredible opportunity to go over and do a story on the ground about what was what was actually happening. You know, when, when this switch, as they call it, locally happened, um, there was this international focus. Uh, there was a focus about how this impacted us as Australians, as Americans, et cetera. There was a lot less attention on what was actually going on on the ground. So, um, you know, I went over there. I did a fair bit of reporting on that on the ground, and what became very apparent was that this was really consequential for real people all over that country, but also had, I guess, um, allayed itself uh, on existing fault lines and tensions within Solomon Islands. So, when you say had real impacts on hmm. people in the Solomons, what were they? Well, I'll give you a great example. I met a woman uh, named Patricia um, on my first reporting assignment over in Solomons. Um, her daughter was someone who had a Taiwanese-funded scholarship. Um, she was studying international relations. She was getting ready to take on the world. Uh, in an instant, that scholarship was rescinded. Um, and this you know, poor family had their lives thrown in tatters. There were also a whole range of Taiwanese-funded programs that uh, in an instant were uh, were removed and, and terminated and you saw people whose lives were disrupted. So sometimes we talk about this exclusively 
through this geopolitical lens from a distance and, and what the book is really trying to uh, try and articulate is that there there is this sort of on the ground uh, impact too. And when you talk about pre-existing fault lines, what are they? Is that because of the the Chinese migrant population there and tensions that exist between uh, the indigenous population of the Solomons? What 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 did this mean in in that regard? Solomons is a country with a, a pretty tumultuous recent history. Um, uh, you know, many many listeners would know there was a. Uh, pretty serious civil unrest between ni- 1998 and 2003 that led to a 13-year Australian peacekeeping operation that wrapped up um, in 2017. Um, that civil unrest was really driven by tensions between, uh, I guess, ethnic groups, uh, groups from the island of uh, Malaita uh, and Malaitans living in Guadalcanal. Um, and, you know, those tensions are long held and long running within Solomon Islands. And effectively, what happened when the switch occurred is we saw... Uh, these two camps emerged. One was sort of in favour of a relationship with China, and that was largely you know, the government and the elites uh, with uh, uh, sort of backing in Manasseh Sogavare. Then we also saw um, those who were against China, these, these um, I guess, opponents of the Chinese government uh, and very much people in favour of Taiwan lining up on the side of the Malaitan government and these sort of Malaitan groups. So um, what happened is that the switch became this moment in which uh, it sort of reanimated many of these existing tensions in the country. Is it clear to you what the broader population of the Solomons supports? Is it this allegiance to China or is it something closer to what existed previously? Well, I think um, it's, it's, there's a few ways to think about that. Um, sometimes we uh, oversimplify and you know homogenise opinion in a place like the Solomon Islands. We like to think of it in sort of a s- simple terms. The reality is that country has a, you know a diversity of views, just like any other place. I think it's fair to say though there is a pretty widespread scepticism of China and the China relationship in Solomon Islands. I think that's pretty clear. There was a deep held loyalty and uh, affinity for the Taiwanese across much of the country, um, but. You know, that being said, there is, of course, uh, yeah, a diversity of views. Some people are very passionate one way or the other. When you travel around the country, there's other people who simply just want to, you know, have a road built, have their uh, hospitals filled with medicine and, and things like that, and they're looking for any help they can get. And so is the is the Chinese promise being delivered upon in that regard? I mean, obviously, there, there are places that you can go in the region where you can see very visibly uh, the impact that Chinese investment is having or diplomatic ties with China is having. Is that apparent well, in the if, Solomons now? If you uh, travel down the main drag in Honiara, you, you don't have to look um, uh, too far to find some pretty major Chinese-funded infrastructure projects. Uh, there's a so Pacific Games are coming up in Solomons in a few weeks' time, and that will largely be held in Chinese-funded uh, infrastructure. That being said, you know it's a question as to whether the people actually want to see big stadiums built, big games infrastructures, which was effectively effectively a part of a pet project of the Prime Minister, um, or whether they want to see much more grassroots, community-level development assistance. And, and the Chinese government certainly haven't provided that yet, and that's the sort of space I believe there's you know more of an opportunity for the Australian government to, to do more in. Can Australia, though, compete ultimately with China in the region? I mean, that's often the question that is asked, regardless of where you're targeting the spending or the, the assistance. In the end, China is just much bigger and can do a lot more. It is, but you know, we have to re- remember Australia is certainly the dominant aid and development partner at the moment in, in Solomon Islands and the Pacific more broadly. Um, and the question isn't necessarily about how much money you can throw at the region, it's about how you spend that and the strategy behind that. Um, and you know, in the book, uh, uh, you know, I talk a lot about the fact that there are so many grassroots small-scale projects that can be 
uh, delivered. And I think Australia um, has, does a fair bit of work in this space, but can do more in which, uh, you know, projects that are really felt on the ground in communities and things like, you know, small scale community energy, uh, health clinics, schooling, all this sort of stuff. At the moment, uh, China's not really stepping into that field. They're focusing on the sort of large mega infrastructure projects. Um, Australia doesn't necessarily need to chase <laughs> and compete on those exact same projects, but I think differentiate its offering and, and uh, that's the way to become really truly the partner of choice in the long term. You mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that it was really the political elites initially uh, that were pursuing this relationship with China and, and who that appealed to. What is the appeal for them? Is it simply because it's easier to do business? Well, there were uh, the determinants of the switch in the first place um, were sort of varied. There is a large business population in Solomon's, for example, that saw commercial benefit in formalising ties with uh, with Beijing. Um, you know, for Manasseh Sogavara, this you know incredibly interesting political figure. You know, in the switch, he really saw an opportunity to receive. Uh, greater support for projects that he personally wished to see, including the Pacific Games, as I was mentioning. Um, but he's also been able to use that to, uh, you know, coax support from his MPs and from supporters within Parliament, many of whom saw an economic opportunity in a relationship with China. Um, so that's where a lot of the attention to and focus towards China has emerged in that country. That was Mikel Institute CEO Ed Kavanagh on his book Divided Isles, speaking there to ABC's Hamish MacDonald. Now, the British Museum is home to priceless artefacts from some two million years' worth of human history. Over the years, there's been demands from countries, including Greece and Egypt, to have their antiquities returned. But the museum has always maintained that they're safe where they are. That has turned out to not be true. Some 2,000 treasures are now believed to have been stolen in recent years. And the museum's director has resigned, admitting he didn't take warnings seriously enough. Dr Christos Sirojanis is a forensic archaeologist who chairs a UNESCO group dedicated to investigating the illicit trafficking of antiquities. And he told Hamish MacDonald about the significance of the scandal. Uh, it's uh, extremely shocking. I mean, no one was expecting uh, of uh, such a scandal, so many objects, and especially in a museum, of uh, that calibre, like the British Museum. Do we know how this happened? Well, according to, to, to reports, it was an inside job, but the information about the incident came from outside, from uh, apparently a Danish uh, antiquities dealer who notified the museum, and not the other way around, as uh, one should expect. When you read those reports that it was this art historian seeing objects for sale on eBay. I mean, did, did you find that a believable situation? Um, well, it sounds unbelievable, but uh, actually it proved to be true. This uh, um, Danish uh, antiquities dealer uh, actually acquired some of the objects and it was, uh, he was the one who identified that some of them belonged to the permanent collection of the British Museum, um, uh, knowing then that um, uh, something was wrong there and notified the museum which uh, said that everything is uh, fine and uh, there are protocols in place to ensure the safeguarding of the objects and none of them was actually true. And that was also two years ago, so they they really um, delayed the whole process. 
given that you investigate this sort of thing, the illicit trafficking of antiquities, has the museum reached out to you and your group uh, for assistance? No, um, I'm, I'm not to tell you the truth so positive that they will do so, given the, the history that they have uh, as a museum with illicit antiquities coming from other nations. Uh, but uh, from uh, my side and the side of my group, we are always available to help any victim uh, of uh, antiquities theft or antiquities trafficking, including the British Museum, if they want to. But are you saying there's been no contact with UNESCO around this? Um, uh, there is certainly no contact with, uh, with our group, uh, yes, of UNESCO related, the UNESCO chair at Ionian University, yes. Obviously, there are many different nations around the world that want their artifacts back that say, you know, uh, Greek artifacts belong in Greece, uh, Australian indigenous artifacts belong in Australia. Does this add weight to those arguments, the fact that these items have been lost, that there hasn't been total transparency around it either? Not only that, total transparency, but uh, actually uh, the fact that so many objects by the thousands and antiquities, most of them um, are being stolen over almost two decades, as it appears to be, uh, without uh, being detected by the museum itself, shows that uh, uh, none of the treasures uh, stored there and exhibited are really safe. And that was one of the fake, actually, as it mainly proved to be now, arguments of the British Museum for over 200 years where they were claiming um, against those nations claiming back their stolen cultural property that they are unable themselves to safeguard their own cultural heritage. So it's better off at the British Museum, which is now, um, uh, in reality, they, they don't have such an argument anymore because it's proved to be the opposite, really. What does this say about the British Museum's record-keeping system and the, and the way they monitor what they have in their, in their archives? This is uh, another uh, scandal that uh, coincides with the same case. They uh, are uh, primarily responsible to ensure that each object is being fully recorded at the moment that is entering the museum collection, any museum's collection, especially uh, a big museum like the British Museum. Uh, it, it appears now, and according to the statements, the official statements by, by the people of the British Museum yesterday, uh, who uh, acknowledged that there is uh, that there are many objects that uh, had no record at all, while several others uh, appear to to be no full record for them. And therefore, especially in the cases that there are no images attached to these records, will make it totally impossible for the museum or anyone acting for, on behalf of the museum to identify, claim and um, uh, get back these objects uh, back to the museum. Should the museum immediately publish a list of what is missing, either to help experts like yourself assist with the search or, or even for the countries of origin, countries like Australia, like Greece, that have artefacts held in those places? Do, do we deserve to know what's missing? We all deserve to know. You're absolutely right. Then the norm in such cases, when museums are targeted and objects have been stolen, is that the museums themselves immediately release images of all the objects 
that they know they have been stolen. And actually, with the aid of the police uh, that uh, is conducting the investigation at the time, um, and the British Museum did so far exactly the opposite. Is still We are still waiting to release images of the objects that they have identified so far um, as missing, while they're cross-checking of their inventory with the actual objects uh, in the museum uh, is ongoing. And um, uh, there is a reason that the museums usually are doing that when they have been targeted, um, one reason is to, to stop these objects being offered in the market. Um, the, the second reason is that they want to involve the public and the experts in potentially identifying these objects or some of these objects and give hints to the police. And the third reason is to remove any fake arguments on behalf of the people who potentially acquired some of these objects to claim later that they couldn't possibly have known that these were coming initially from the stolen stuff from the British Museum collection. And that was Dr. Christos Sirojanis speaking with Hamish MacDonald. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat.